And in those cases, we, you know, we open it and we, we want to be grateful and gracious. You know, they've gotten us a present. And in those situations, we say it's the blank that counts. It's the thought that counts. And we say, look, this, this isn't something I would have bought for myself ever, but it's the thought that counts. You know, because we appreciate, look, they went out of their way. They want to show us love and kindness. And so we appreciate the fact that they got us something. Now, think about if you had someone in your family or maybe a spouse or, or a loved one who got you the best present ever. It's like they had a sixth sense about what you would want. Somehow they know every present is perfect, just mind blown every time you open a present. But you knew the only reason they bought that was to make you feel like you owed them, to make them look amazing and kind and wonderful, to remind you of all the things that you didn't have without them, and just to sort of rub it in your face. Now imagine if you got those presents. Part of you would say, hey, this is a great present. I really like this. But I think that would be overshadowed by the fact that we know they're not doing this because they love us. They're not doing this because they want something good for us. It's really ultimately about them. When it comes to presents, motivation matters. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, as we'll see in chapter 13, motivation matters. The Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts for various motivations. Most of them, it it appears, and certainly from chapter 12, were selfish and destructive, rather than I'm using my gift for being generous and loving. Now, if you know from our context, as we've gotten up to chapter 13, we are in this larger section from really back in, I mean, you could say even back in 8, certainly in 10 and 11, up till now about the worship gathering, some issues that were going on in the Sunday gathering. Uh, We've talked in chapter 11 about some issues with the Lord's Supper, and there was all sorts of division going on. And Paul comes to, after 12, he's described all the gifts, he comes to chapter 13, and in one sense, he appears to sort of just turn the page and say, let's talk about love. Why not? Well, we've harped on spiritual gifts. Let's just talk about love. And the question is, does chapter 13 represent a side note? Uh, Some have called it a hymn to love. You know, Paul's just like, you know, I'm tired of talking spiritual gifts, so let's just talk about love. Or does chapter 13 flow from chapter 12? Is chapter 13 connected to chapter 12? I would say yes. And the commentators, those of you who read uh, commentaries, you'll see the same thing. That we understand chapter 13 to not be this just totally new topic, but rather it's connected to and it flows from chapter 12 in the issue of spiritual gifts. And what Paul's going to teach us today is it's like the giving of presents. Motivation matters. When we use our spiritual gifts, the motivation that drives us and, and, and uh, describes how we use those gifts matters. You remember back in chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the what? Anybody remember? For the common good. Yeah, so we're given these gifts for a specific purpose, and I appreciate, as Dr. David talked about uh, in our prayer time, love is putting me aside and saying, what do you need? What does the body need? Spiritual gifts are not intended for our own advancement our own benefit, our own praise, you know, building ourselves up and saying, aren't I wonderful with my amazing gifts? No, no, no. The proper use of spiritual gifts requires us to be others focused. Really, it's the model that Jesus gave. Jesus comes and he is about others. Incredible love and compassion and service. That's what our love ought to look like when we use our spiritual gifts. So what I want us to see this morning, our main idea is this. When followers of Jesus use their spiritual gifts, the motivation should be, emphasis on the should be, love for other members 
of the body. That ought to be our motivation when we use our spiritual gifts. We, in chapter 12, we figured out, hopefully, kind of what are our spiritual gifts, and you've thought through that. And now we think about, as I use them, what's my motivation? And it should be love. So stand with me, if you would. I want to read for us our passage today, chapter 13. I actually want to start right at the end of chapter 12, okay, because these chapter headings here are not original. And the end, the very last phrase, in fact, in, in some of your Bibles probably have this last phrase of 12 sort of set off apart, like its own paragraph. So let me begin here. The end of chapter 12, if you're there, say word. Fantastic. Paul says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And here it is, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us uh, wisdom and understanding as we approach this passage. Help us to understand and give us grace to receive and apply and to yield as you would lead us through your spirit and your word. Teach us what we don't know, Convict us where need be, point us to Jesus where need be, and help us, Father, to be more loving in our usage of our spiritual gifts. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, first this morning, I want us to see that love is supreme over all of the other spiritual gifts, even the ones that may seem more important or more spiritual. So number one, the supremacy of of love. And I want to read for us again, beginning in verse 1. Paul describes here and says, If I speak in the tongues of men but have not love, uh, I'm a, gl- a, a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers or mysteries but no, and faith but I have no love, I am nothing. And he goes on and he describes these gifts, making the case now that love is supreme. Now, in our study of 1 Corinthians, what we've seen already from, really from day one seems like, we have seen examples in this, in this letter of pride, uh, division, lots of that, disregard for others. Let me just give you a few examples. This is not exhaustive. From chapters 1 and 3, we saw divisions about who to follow. Well, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, and you're not. Well, then, you know, you go somewhere else. Uh, we've seen in chapter 8 and chapter 10, uh, looking down on weaker brothers and a refusal to lay aside my rights for the sake of others. 
Oh, you don't like this? That's too bad. It's my way or the highway. I don't have to change for you. We saw a lot of that in chapter 8 and 10. We saw in chapter 11 just recently at the Lord's Supper table, gluttony, drunkenness on, the, on behalf of some of the church while others went hungry. We saw these factions at, 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 of all places gathered around the Lord's Supper. We saw these factions. The Corinthian church was being ravaged by selfishness, pride, disregard for other people. And reminder, this is the church. We're not even talking about the world out there. We're talking about Sunday morning, and this is happening. Worldly attitudes were running amok in the household of God. And so when you come to chapter 12 and chapter 13, unsurprisingly, you find that same sort of division and and divisiveness and disregard in the situation of spiritual gifts. And what Paul does here in chapter or in verses one through three is show us that love ought to be our supreme motivation when we use our gifts. And it ought to be the supreme characteristic of our service. People say, hey, what's it look like when you use your gifts in the church? Number one ought to be it looks loving. It looks like love for one another. But notice he, he doesn't just say, hey, guys, I, I've heard a lot of things few things could be better, so just make sure you're more loving on Sundays. Make sure you just dial it up a notch, be a little bit more loving, and that'll be fine. No, he doesn't say that. He makes incredibly bold claims here and says, if you use your gifts in an unloving manner, he says, it's as if you don't have it. You might as well just stay at home. It's actually for nothing. Look at what he says. He says, if I speak in tongues, that's a very important gift to the Corinthians. But he says, if I do that, but I don't have love, I'm like a gong or a clanging cymbal. Who wants to listen to that all day long? You know, what benefit does he you know, take a cymbal and crash it in your ears? How are we built up from that? Oh, we're not. He says there's nothing there. If I have prophecy or understanding and all this knowledge of God's word, and I have all these things, but I'm not loving, what benefit is it? Paul says it's actually nothing. He says, if I give away everything, verse 3, if I give away everything I have, so generosity times 10, but I don't do it out of love, he says, I have nothing. He says, I can deliver up my body even to the point of death. I can be a martyr for Jesus, giving my life for the sake of the gospel. And he says, but if you don't have love, if you don't do that out of a a love for other people, particularly we're talking about your body of Christ here in the church, If you don't do that out of love, he says, you gain nothing. That's a bold claim to Corinth. They were all about the spiritual gifts. They're supposed to be used for the common good, for building up the body. But as we've seen in chapter 12 and and earlier, they're using them in the wrong way, and so you get the wrong um, outcome. You know, something that's meant to be used for good is now being used for sort of personal enrichment and pride and all about me. And so you get the opposite of common good. You get division and factions and destroying the body. It's a bit like when it comes to using medicines. I know we've all used or have or will at some point use medication and and you get it and you look on the back and you read all the things and there are instructions there for how we're supposed to use it. Okay, you take a certain amount at a certain time of day, a certain number of times a day. Those are those instructions for how we're supposed to use it. And if we do that and follow those instructions, we reap the benefit of it because we're using it the way it's designed to be. Whether it's regulating our kidneys or our heart or, you know, making migraines go away or just the headaches known as children go away. Whatever it is, if you use it the right way, we 
reap the benefit. But what happens if you use something good like medication, but you use it the wrong way? What if you say, ah, today I just feel like doubling up. It's got to be more is better. Or, well, I'll just take it more times than it's supposed to be. The same medication that can literally preserve our life could actually take our life. Something, Something that's good used in the wrong way can actually bring detriment and harm. And we see that here in the Corinthian church. And, but do you notice the gifts that Paul actually talks about in verses 1 through 3? There are more gifts mentioned in chapter 12 than he mentions here in verses 1 through 3. But do you notice the ones that he lists? In particular, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Why these gifts? Because these are gifts that the Corinthians elevated to a position of superiority. Remember we saw in chapter 12, there was this idea of, oh, well, you're a foot and I'm a head, so I don't need you. Meaning, oh, you don't have the gift of tongues? Well, clearly we don't need you around here. I am much more important. Paul uses in verses 1 through 3 the very same gifts that the Corinthians prided themselves in. He uses those and lists them here and says, you know those gifts you're all about? If you don't have love, count for nothing. All those gifts that you you walk around and you say, oh, man, I've got tongues. I've got prophecy. Oh, you just have service? Well, back row for you. Paul says, no, no, no. If you don't have love in the way that you use those gifts, you might as well just stay home because you're of no benefit, no enrichment, no service to the body. One commentator says it this way. I like his quote. He says, Paul's strategy is to place in center stage the gift that the Corinthians prized the most and that was causing the greatest disruption in their assembly and then to bring it down several notches by showing its emptiness without love. Take the thing they were most about, bring it down a few notches because they had forgotten love. At the core of any local church, Take Crosspoint as an example. At the core of our church ought to be a community of believers that loves one another, that shows that kind of love by putting one another first, by showing kindness, compassion. Let's just say it by being Jesus to one another. The same sort of characteristics and and compassion and love and all the traits of Jesus show that same sort of love to one another. You know, I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say, hey, if you've got spiritual gifts, make sure also that you also have uh, PhDs in theology. Uh, Make sure that your church supports 100 missionaries overseas. Make sure that you're planting 10 churches a year. Make sure that you're feeding 100 people in the community every week. No. He says make sure that you have love. Now, does that mean all those other things are bad? Of course not. But what would those things matter if we couldn't love one another? What would it matter how many churches we try to plant, how many missionaries we support, if we as the body of Christ can't even love one another? What would it matter all the things that we could do if we come here on a Sunday morning and it's just backbiting, division, hatred, factions? All those things, Paul says, would be nothing. And so I want to ask this morning, uh, just a a thought as we think about what to do with something like this. Here's a question to ponder this week. What motivates you to use your spiritual gift here at Crosspoint? Now that assumes that you're using it. What motivates you as you use your gift? Possible motivations could be on the negative end, uh, pride, 
selfishness, a desire for praise, desire to be seen. On the better end, love for others. Uh, Maybe it's competition. Maybe you teach, you have the gift of of prophecy or knowledge, something like that, and, and, and you teach the Bible, but you do it so that people will follow you and praise you and give you a bigger platform. There's plenty of this going on in the broader church today. Maybe you have the gift of service, but you do so so that people will look at you and say, man, look how hard that guy works. Look at all the things he does. Uh, maybe you are generous. You have the gift of generosity. You, wanna, you love to give financially, but you do so so that people will talk about how generous you are. You talk about, look, can you believe how much money they gave? Maybe you have the gift of knowledge and understanding, but the only reason you speak that knowledge is so everybody will see how smart you are and how dumb they are. You see, we can take good spiritual gifts that are designed for the enrichment of the body, and when we use them the wrong way with the wrong motivation, all they do is tear down and destroy. Paul says that's what's happening here in Corinth. Now, you guys, you've received Christ and you were growing, and now all of this stuff that's happening Paul sort of looks in the middle and says, you know what, I can just pinpoint exactly where you went wrong. You don't love one another. You know, if you could fix that thing, a whole host of issues would fix themselves. I mean, just think how far we've come in the, in the letter so far. All the issues, the division and the, the lawsuits and the, all the sorts of things that have happened. If you could just love one another, how much of that stuff would go away? So I want to challenge you this morning to examine your heart. And ask the question, what is my motivation as I use my gift here at Crosspoint? Is it love? Is it genuine concern for the body? Is it to see, as Paul would say, the the common good? Or is it so people will look at me? People will think how wonderful I am. Because if you're not doing it out of a a loving concern for the body, it's as if you're not doing it at all. There's no benefit, Paul's saying. Well, now that he's made this argument in the opening verses for the supremacy of love, he turns in uh, verses 4 through 7 to give us a brief description of what love actually looks like. What is this kind of love, Paul says, that we need? Well, let's read again verses 4 through 7, and I want us to see, number 2, the nature of love. Verse 4 again, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, we could just camp out here for 15 weeks, 15 verbs in there. Let's just take a 15-week series on love. Well, of course, we don't have time for that, obviously. We don't have time this morning to dig too detailed, uh, too far in here. But in this summary of love, there are a few observations I want to make for us as we think about Paul's description. Uh, Rather than taking each word, a passage like this is not problematic for me because we don't know what it means. For me personally, it's problematic because I know exactly what it means. I I know exactly what he means when he says love is patient and kind. And that's a problem because I see myself as not being patient and kind. So we don't need to spend an hour talking about what it means to be patient and kind. We understand that. But there are some observations I want to make on why Paul gives the description that he does. And so let me do that with three simple observations. Number one, Paul uses verbs and not adjectives to describe love. You see that? He's not talking about sort of this butterflies, feelings. I just love myself. 
No, he's talking about action. Love is shown through the way that we serve one another. How do you show patience? Well, enduring something that is infuriating and just frustrating. How do you show kindness? We actually do something. So he uses this description here, and he doesn't give us just sort of this feeling, you know, just, just love your church feeling. No, no, he says, the kind of love that we need, you got to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty. you got to be with the people. That sort of love. Each characteristic of love requires us to die to self, to lay aside ego, and to seek the good of others in the church. And that's hard. It's pretty easy to talk about loving the church. If you've been here long enough, it's hard to actually love the church. So Paul uses verbs, not adjectives. Observation number two, the description of love is a critique of what's missing in Corinth. So this is what I said in the beginning. Some have tried to interpret chapter 13 as this separate topic. Paul is just writing a hymn about how wonderful uh, love is. But actually, Paul, in writing this and saying, here's what love is, it's a thinly veiled critique of Corinth. The implication is, hey, here's what love is. Do you see that in your church? That's what's happening here. Paul is describing what is missing in Corinth. And as we think back through the first chapter, or the first 12 chapters of the book, we can see many examples of the opposite of what he says in verses 4 through 7. The love is patient and kind. We've seen a lot of impatience and a lot of lack of kindness in chapters 1 through 12. When Paul writes here, hey, let me tell you a little bit about love. What ought to happen is Corinthians, they get this letter, and oh, fantastic, it's a letter from Paul. They start reading it, and they think, ugh. They start looking around. They think, oh, boy, that, that doesn't quite sound like Corinth. It's a critique of what's missing. And observation number three, Paul describes God's love in Christ that we receive in salvation. So he's not just coming up with, I wonder what love would be like in Corinth. No, he has in mind here a very specific kind of love. And it's the love that God has shown us in Christ. And to some extent, you could take these verses and and read them and take out the word love and put the word God in there. God is patient. God is kind. The fact that he has not punished us for our sin, but has forgiven us. Uh, he does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant. God is not rude. In our Sunday school class, we're talking about Jesus being um, gentle and lowly. He's not rude and brash and boastful. Does not insist on its own way. That's Philippians 2. Jesus humbles himself to the point of death on a cross, rather than, as Paul says, clinging to his position divine rights. When Paul describes love here, it's, he's not looking at the, uh, the, you know, the pop songs of the day for what love is like. He's not reading a, a romance novel to see what love is like. He's thinking about the love that God has shown us in Christ. And he says, okay, church, when you use your gifts, do so in a way that loves the other people in your church the same way that God has loved Jesus and the same way he's shown you that same love in salvation. Now, what a lofty standard that is for us, that our love for one another is supposed to be a reflection of God's love shown to us in Christ. What a standard. These verses are a stark contrast to what's happening in Corinth. And as we've seen from the beginning of the book, there's rampant sin, pride, disregard. Paul describes here something that's missing 
And in so doing, it's this critique. What Paul is saying essentially is, Corinth, you've, you've gone wrong. You've got these gifts that are good, but you forgot to use them in a way that looks like Jesus. You forgot to use them with a sort of love that people would say, wow, that, that reminds me of what I've read about Jesus and the way he treated people. question for us, certainly as we think about what to do with this, is the question that comes to my mind is, how well am I loving fellow members? When it comes to church members, how well am I loving them? Do I love them in a way that people would look at, it's like, man, he loves them like Jesus loves them. Maybe for you, uh, ask the question, is my love for others, I talk about loving people in the church, is that theoretical? Is that sort of um, on the shelf kind of love? put it on the shelf, I can talk about it, but I don't want to actually take it down and deal with it. Is your love for the church a lot of spiritual-sounding adjectives, but very few verbs? Oh, I love my church, I love my church, I love my church, but you never do anything? To love the body, as I said, we have to roll up our sleeves and get to work. You can't love the body from the sidelines. You can't love the body from the outside. You got to get in there. Paul says, look, when you're using your spiritual gifts, whether it's service or faith or encouragement, teaching, prophecy, whatever it is, he says the way you ought to do that, when people look at the usage of that gift, is it ought to be characterized by this incredible kind of love, this love that God has for us that we can then show others. Now, let me just make one comment. Uh, Pastor West kind of stole my thunder a little bit. Um, where are you most likely to hear verses 4 through 7 read? At a wedding, yeah. Um, I won't ask if you had it read at your wedding. Now, I'm not here to, to dump on that uh, at all. Uh, because the question is, like, well, okay, if it's a church verse, does that mean I'm wrong then for using it at, at a wedding? I don't think so at all. I mean, what greater, you know, summary of the kind of love that we should have for our spouses is there than these verses? So I think it's totally okay to take this model and by extension say, hey, I want that to also be a model for how I treat my spouse. However, the one danger I think that we have in doing that is, for most of us, the only time we've ever heard these verses talked about is in the context of a wedding. And where there's a tendency to think, okay, those verses are about marital love. But as Pastor West said, they're about the church. Now, can we extend them to spouses? Yes, but not to the detriment of what they were intended for which is the context of the local church. And when we only think of them in the context of a wedding, I think we run the risk of saying, well, it's my spouse. I, sure, I love them, and I'll be patient and kind and things like that. But when it comes to the church, no thanks. See, when we take it out of its context, we take our responsibility away. If we take this out of a church context, then I'm no longer responsible for doing this in a church context. We can opt out of something that we're supposed to do. So, love your spouse all day long using these verses as a model. But also love your church using these verses as, as a model. For those of you who had this, we, had this read at your wedding, wake up every Sunday morning thinking these verses and think, okay, now I know what I'm supposed to do on Sunday when I gather. I'm supposed to be patient and kind with my spouse and with my church family. I'm supposed to love, um, I'm not supposed to envy or boast with my spouse and also my church family. See, the standard is the same, whether, you know, it's easier, we think, to, to love my spouse. I chose that one, and I'm okay with her or him, but 
Paul says, no, no, that same sort of love, that's also here in the church. And if we, if we say, we, oh, I love my spouse that way, but I don't love my church that way, we've missed something. We ought to be characterized in both contexts, that we would love this kind of love. And how many of our churches would be encouraged and, and built up and strengthened if we actually loved this way? How many of our marriages, of course, would be strengthened if we loved this way? Mine would. It's not that Hannah needs to improve. It's that I need to improve. You know, I, I can't make it past verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Well, there's my homework for today because I look and see that I'm not patient and kind with my spouse. and I'm not patient and kind with my church members. So whether it's in the marriage or here in the church, as Paul intended, this love, this standard that he has given us is incredibly high. It's not a simple, easy, like, ah, I just kind of love those guys, they're fine. No, it is a often painful, arduous task to love some people. But it is one that we are called to. And it's one that we are motivated to by the incredible love that we've received from God. And you may be sitting here, you may be watching online, and you think, man, I don't know that I've ever experienced that kind of love from anybody. Maybe you grew up in a broken home, got a broken marriage with terrible friends, and you think, I don't, I've never experienced that love. Or maybe you've grown up in a great home, got a great marriage, but you think, that just seems deeper than anything I've ever experienced. I don't know that I could ever actually show that kind of love to somebody. Well, I would agree that we can't. Because in order to show this kind of love to someone, we have to first experience this kind of love. You could never love somebody more than you have been loved and experienced and received love. How do I experience this kind of love? Well, I mentioned it's, it's the same sort of love that God has shown us in Christ. How do I experience that? We receive Christ. The Bible talks about God's love having been poured out into our hearts when we're saved. You think, I've never experienced a love like this. Jesus, as we're learning in our Sunday school study, he, he says, come to me. You, you've grown up without this sort of love, come to me. Come to the one who will love you perfectly, who will love you more deeply than anyone else. We do that when we come to Christ in faith. We lay aside our sins. We lay aside all the things that we've tried to cling to. We forsake it. We repent. And we come to Christ and we say, I need you. And in that moment, we experience this kind of love. We experience an incredible love, unlike any that we'll find in the church, that we'll find even in the best of marriages, anywhere in the world. We experience an incredible, life-changing love. If you're here this morning or watching or maybe watching 10 years from now and you have not experienced that kind of love, I want to encourage you to come to the one who offers that love, and that's the Lord Jesus. Come to him in faith, humility, receive him, and experience his love. In the Corinthian church, you know, as we've seen certainly in chapter 12, some of the believers are elevating spiritual gifts to this sort of pedestal of saying, these gifts are most important. And if you don't have those gifts, you're sort of second class. We've seen it with prophecy and tongues and things like that. But in the last few verses here, verses 8 through 13, 
Paul is going to show us that these spiritual gifts, though they are important, actually they won't last forever. Okay? There's an expiration date on them in some sense, but there's no expiration date on love. And so look at verses 8 through 13 again, and I want us to see number three, the endurance of love. The endurance of love. Let me read again uh, verse 8. He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The Corinthians, they were all about certain gifts. Notice, they're not about all the gifts. They're about the impressive ones. And yet what Paul is telling us here in this passage is they've overlooked the fact that these, these spiritual gifts that they are all about actually won't last forever. That there's actually coming a day when those gifts that for them is just everything is about tongues, everything's about prophecy, everything's about knowledge. He says, no, actually there's coming a day when those things, we won't even need them. It'd be unnecessary. That's what he says in verses 8 through 10. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. How can Paul say that these spiritual gifts are only temporary? I, I mean, you know, we talk about you're saved, you're filled with the Spirit, and you get these gifts. How can Paul then say that they're temporary? Well, because what he does is he contrasts two time periods. There is the now, and there is the future. And it's not just like today and tomorrow. It's a, a type of time. There is the now, the right now, and then there's a future time that's coming that is different. The way he describes it here is he says, right now we know certain things, but we only know in part. We don't know everything. But there's coming a day when we will know in a fullness in the future. Right now we prophesy in part, sort of uh, limited in our ability to do that. But in the future will prophesy in full. There's a greater understanding coming. He says, we have tongues now, but in the future, they're going to cease. We won't need them anymore. We live as believers today in the sort of already but not yet of redemptive history. You think about God's plan from eternity past. He's chosen us and bringing all this through, and he's justified us. And now we're sort of in this waiting period. We are saved. We have been made alive in Christ. But the purpose, the ultimate purpose of what God is doing in redemptive history is not here yet. So we're in this already, but not yet. We await a future time that will be completely different. What we're waiting on is what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15. A resurrection body and all things are made new. An incredibly different time is what we're waiting on. And what Paul points out here is that these spiritual gifts he's talking about, therefore, this is the things that I used to do. You meet a 25-year-old who thinks like a child, talks like a child, that's a problem, right? There was a, a certain way I did things, and now I do things differently. And he gives the illustration of a mirror, he says. Uh, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, some point, face to face. Mirrors in this day were not what we think of as mirrors, sort of this very clear image. They were just sort of polished metals, and you kind of kind of hazy, you could sort of see things, all right? It wasn't a clear picture. So what Paul says is he likens that to this time that we're in. Right now, we, we see sort of dimly. We don't understand everything. We haven't seen how everything plays out. But there's coming a day, he says, 
when it will be face to face. Now I know, verse 12 in part, then I shall know fully. Now I know some now, but I'll know fully then, even as I have been fully known. A time of perfection is coming, Paul says, but it's not here yet. When will it come? That's a great question. One that has uh, certainly stumped us because the question is, okay, if spiritual gifts are only for a time, how long is that coming? Paul says here very clearly there's coming a day when these gifts will pass away. The question is, well, when is that, Paul? And people have debated this for centuries. There are several different views. Uh, One common view is that some of the gifts, particularly what we call the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy and miracles, well, those gifts ended in A.D. 70 when the temple of Jerusalem was restored, uh, was destroyed. Okay, very common view. Other views, other time periods, but the idea is that some of these gifts, well, they've just, they've ended. I can't get on board with that sort of understanding uh, because I don't see any indication in the New Testament for that, and I certainly don't see an indication here in chapter 13 for that. Because Paul actually gives us a hint of when these gifts will end. Notice what he says. Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Has the perfect come yet? No. Verse 12, we see in a mirror dimly now, but then there's coming a day when it will be face to face. A time of perfection is coming, Paul says, but it's not here yet. When will that be? When is the time of perfection coming? Anybody know? Anybody hazard a guess? Sunday school answer. Jesus, yes. When Jesus comes back, Paul says, that's the time of perfection. Christ returns. All things are made new. New resurrection bodies. Amen for that. Uh, New heavens and earth. Everything is perfect. All the wrong has been put aside and punished. All justice has been given. And now everything is perfect. John describes it in 1 John 3, one of my favorite verses. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We're still waiting. But we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him. Anybody finish it? Because we shall see him as he is. There's coming a day when we won't be looking as through like a mirror dimly lit. There's coming a day when we won't have uh, sort of this limited understanding, limited knowledge here of what's happening. There's coming a day when the imperfect will pass away and the perfect will replace it. One commentator describes it this way. He says, when Christ returns, there will be no need for prophecy or tongues or the limited knowledge the church gains in this world. All these gifts only provide glimpses and foreshadows of that perfection that is still to come. Just as the shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system no longer continue now that, now that Christ to whom they pointed has come, he says, so also the shadowy, imperfect gifts of the Spirit will disappear when perfection comes. Now you read the whole book of Hebrews, and it's all about how the Old Testament sacrifice system, it was shadows, it pointed us to something better, and that's Jesus having fulfilled it. This author makes a great point, he says, it's the same way now with spiritual gifts. They are for a time, but they point to a time when they will no longer be necessary, when perfect comes. But Paul says, unlike these sign gifts that will fade away, 
there's one element of the church that will remain, and that is love. And it may seem, certainly to the Corinthians, it probably seems a little underwhelming. You know, hey guys, all those fancy gifts you're, you're about, those are going to fade away. But it's okay, one of them's going to remain. All right, Paul, what you got for us? He says, love. Womp. Sort of underwhelming here. Being loved perfectly one day. Here you go. It'll be amazing. Paul says love is not going to end. Knowledge and tongues and prophecy, those things, those will be replaced when perfect comes. But love, love's going to remain. Love will never end. The sign gifts that the Corinthians were so concerned with are going to fade away. But love will endure. Even a billion years into eternity, the church will still be marked by its love for one another. And so I want to leave you with this question, one that has haunted me all week. If your spiritual gift were taken away from you in an instant, right now, if it goes away, and all that you were left with was the love that you had for other believers, how much would you be left with? If in an instant your spiritual gift is gone and all you have left is just that love that you have for one another, how much would you have left? Would it be nothing? Would you be thinking, oh, boy, I wish I could have those gifts back? Or would it be a lot because of the love that you have for one another? That's a question that's haunted me all week. And now you get to be haunted all week as well. But think through it and ask the Lord to guide you in your thinking. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, for the common good of the body. They're given for the common good. And when used properly, like medications, they bring about a great um, uh, result. The body is built up. We've seen that in, in chapter 12. You know, the body is strengthened, and the arms and the legs and the heads, everything works together, and it's, it's good. It's good for all of us. But when used with an improper motivation, as we've seen, they tear down the body. They divide the body. They bring about all this chaos and destruction that we've seen already. That's why Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 12, right at the end, he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. It's as if Paul's saying, look, you guys, you got these gifts, and you think that's all there is to it. So let me, let me take it up a notch. Let me show you a better way. Use that gift out of an incredible love for one another. Then see what God does with it. May we as Cross Point Baptist Church be known as a body of believers that loves one another. All the things people on the outside might say about us, I hope they can say, we're, we're a, that, that church, they love each other. They may not have this thing or that thing or be the fanciest or biggest or whatever, but you can see it. They love one another. And may we use our spiritual gifts for the common good, for the sake of the church. May it be said that Crosspoint is patient and kind. Crosspoint does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Crosspoint does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Crosspoint does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Crosspoint bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. May that be said of us to the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are perhaps struck by the simplicity of, of these verses. But in seeing the simplicity of understanding them, we're also struck by the difficulty of obeying them. 
And so we pray, Father, simply that you would give us grace to love, that when we use our gifts, we would do so out of love. And as we